BiblicalTraining.org provides a comprehensive biblical education from world-class professors to encourage spiritual growth in the church for free. In this podcast, we'll be sharing lectures and having conversations about biblical topics that matter to you today. If you find these episodes helpful, please give us a good rating on iTunes and share them with your friends and networks. The mission of the church. When we fold up those chairs and we stop zitzing on our flesh, what is it that we're supposed to be doing? Well, Jesus sends people to preach the gospel into all the world. We're supposed to be bearing fruit in such a way that people look at our works and they praise our God who is in heaven. And when the future judgment comes, that's part of what's going to be in it. What were you doing? I hope that chair was comfortable because now it's hot. Jesus' worship was Jewish and yet distinct. He was not concerned about issues of purity as preventing certain actions of mercy from taking place. He was not concerned about issues of hand washing getting in the way of fellowship. He gives a distinct community prayer. He changes the liturgy at the Last Supper. But there is no discussion anywhere by Jesus of the form of worship. Only the integrity that is supposed to come as one worships. Interesting. If you have something against your brother as you go along the way, don't come into worship. Take care of your relationship to your brother first and then show up to worship. That's talking about integrity as we worship. It's regularly seen. Worship can be seen in acts of prayer and in acts of charity. The image of the community as lost sheep in need of a shepherd. Where they need to be shepherded is to this category of integrity of worship and commitment to mission. Commitment to carry out the call of the church. And by the way, the best place to carry out that call is to be engaged. Where you work, with your neighbors, Maybe what we need to do with the concept of church is to think about its four walls, not ending where I park the car on Sunday, but thinking of the four walls of the church extending around the globe. This is my Father's world, and I am called to serve the Father in it. Uh-huh. Well, I think you need to know enough so that you're able to illustrate theologically the concepts that are working with this imagery and these cultural scripts. So, for example, when we talked about the, when we talked about the gospel, and we used the background and the backdrop of purity and uncleanliness in relationship, images of uncleanliness on the one hand and sin on the other, if you will, uncleanliness and sacrifice, those two things, and washings, to understand that dynamic opens up how to picture the gospel. So it's like introducing someone in some ways to a new culture and having them think a little bit cross-culturally, only now you're doing it theologically. Yeah, but the point here is, is that even though it's Jewish culture, the point is, is that that culture is picturing things that also themselves are pictures about what our relationship to God should be like. So we're not talking about ritual baths but we're talking about the picture of cleansing. We're not talking about 
slaying goats and lambs. But we are talking about the fact that when sin takes place, it comes with a price. It comes at a cost. As does restoration. Repairing the damage from sin comes at a price and comes at a cost. It isn't a matter of indifference. And we live in a world in which many people think moral choices are a matter of indifference. They're just a matter of individual perspective. To your own self be true. If you do that, if you're true to your own self, to use the language of Matthew, there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. We're not talking about seeing a dentist. Disciples' character in the world. Love and mercy are to be seen as a reflection of knowing, trusting, and imaging God. That last ing word is chosen on purpose. Love and mercy is a reflection of knowing, trusting, and imaging God. You reflect Him when you live with love and mercy and forgiveness, a pursuit of righteousness, absolutely so, but in the context of a love and mercy and forgiveness. So next to love and mercy, there's a righteous integrity. There is a righteousness that is to be a part of the person that comes from within. What you see is what you get. My wife told me that she went to a message last week by a pastor whose message basically was, we should live in glass houses. His point was that our life should have such an integrity that we don't worry about doing something in private. That what we do, we are comfortable with the world seeing. It's an interesting point. That's what righteous integrity is all about. Righteousness has nothing to fear and nothing to hide. So we get the antitheses. We get the call to disciples to be salt and light. The picture of the light is that it lights up the way of darkness and that people see what we do and praise God as a result. What really defiles is not what goes into the body or whether I wash my hands, but what comes out of the mouth and the heart. Illustrated negatively, how not to have righteous integrity is illustrated by the rebuke of the scribes and Sadducees in Matthew 23. If you want to kind of take a negative spiritual formation exam, just work your way through what Jesus criticizes in those chapters. More on the disciples' character. I need to be really, 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 really careful about how I view possessions and how I attach myself to the world. Really careful. Especially really careful in a society as materialistic as ours. In which most people, including Christians, spend the bulk of their time figuring out how they can get what they don't have. If not just surviving. By the way, most Americans on a world standard are rich. Okay, you may think you're a poor seminary student, okay, but on the world standards, you're rich. You're with the big boys. You may not be a billionaire, but you've got food, shelter, and clothing, which Paul said is all you need. 
Beatles have it wrong. All you need is not love. Well, it helps. Food, shelter, and clothing. If I have food, shelter, and clothing, Paul said, I'm content. So attachment to the world risks reflecting an independence from God and risks in its pursuit turning people and the things around me into things to be used. Discipleship requires an absolute commitment to dependence. The world hates dependence. The world exalts independence. So we're talking basic values here. Suffering. I think about preachers who preach a message that basically says, come to the church and God will take care of you. You will be happy. Life's a beach. And the church is the beachhead. Bring your lounge chair and come worship with us. If anyone does not take up his cross daily, he's not a disciple. Suffering means to be willing to bear the cross, to bear the rejection, to lose one's life, to gain the soul. And Jesus preached this quite publicly to everybody as he was talking about coming to the kingdom of God. Fifth element of the disciples' character, service and mission. It is all through the gospel. What does Jesus send the twelve to do? They basically do two things. They basically sit and hear Jesus teach, and then what else do they do? They go out and share the message of the coming of the Maybe we all ought to have the name pastor before our name. Maybe that would help the church. Now, one of the uh, lessons of the Reformation was that we are all believer priests. That gets at it. So the next time you go to church, just start calling everybody reverend. See what happens. What are you the pastor of? Service and mission. By the way, great illustration of a theologically zealous group that doesn't quite have their act together shows up in Acts chapter 1. Lord, is this the time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Man, I've got Jesus here. I'm going to figure out everything that's going on theologically. How does Jesus answer it? Not for you, know the times and the seasons. And then we get Acts 1.8. The sad thing about Acts 1.8 is, is that it's a memory verse that's lost its context. You may want to figure all this out. That'll come in God's timing. In the meantime, you have a calling. You're going to receive power from on high. And I want you to be my witnesses beginning in Jerusalem to Samaria to the ends of the earth. That's what you should be concerned about. Vindication to come. Story ends with a vindication to come. This is eschatology. There are warnings to Israel that she risks judgment if she doesn't believe. And it's offered again and again and again. And an opportunity for her to respond comes again and again and again and again. Even with miracles that mirror what Jesus did earlier after warning them that they aren't reading the signs of the time correctly. That they need to subscribe to AccuWeather at a spiritual level. 
the report from the Spiritual Weather Society today is, is that clouds are overhead and that coming soon is the kingdom and judgment of God. Should the kingdom and judgment of God come, please respond, because if you don't, it will be worse than a tornado warning. <laughs> a new bulletin will be released at the end of the hour. That was the emergency broadcast system of Jesus. So there are warnings to Israel all over the place. In fact, even John the Baptist issued a warning. He said the axe lies at the root of the tree. Jesus told parables that emphasized the fact that God has been coming to the vineyard and nothing's been growing for a while. And then finally, of course, he issues his judgment in 13, 34, and 33 after saying, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to gather you under my wings, but you wouldn't have it. And so now your house is desolate until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Judgment of the world and the Son of Man. The one part of authority the world does not want to see. They love a Jesus who's a prophet. They don't like the idea of a Jesus who's a judge. So, numerous kingdom parables are about Jesus as a judge. So much so, that when Peter preaches the first sermon that we have recorded given to a Gentile audience, in Acts chapter 10, he says that God has appointed one to be the judge of the quick and the dead. That's the King James. I love the, that language. The quick and the dead. Okay, the quick are the living. Okay, they at least move. The dead go nowhere. Okay, they're not quick at all. Even a tortoise is faster than the dead. A snail lives like lightning in comparison to the dead. Jesus is going to judge the quick and the dead. Be quick, don't be dead. The performing of righteousness, Jesus says, is recognizing who the Son of Man is. As John said in chapter 5, this is the work of God. They believe in the One whom the Father has sent. And the only unforgivable sin is to not embrace the One who is not just Lord of the Sabbath or Lord of the Temple, but the One who is Lord of the world. The major point of the eschatological discourse and the end of Jesus' ministry where this point becomes emphasized is on the judgment that he will bring. It even comes up at Jesus' trial before the Jewish leadership. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the Father coming on the clouds. What does the Son of Man come on the clouds from heaven to the earth to do, to judge. Having received the authority from the Father, a total divine authority is in view, but Jesus never says when he's going to do it. So you've got to keep watching. But you don't watch and wait. You watch and serve. The final week. The debate from the entry on is over authority. Something more than prophetic authority. And whether we think about the humble king entering into Jerusalem 
or the cleansing of the Messiah at the temple, or the controversies over religion and politics and even Scripture, or the picture of Israel as tending a vineyard that she is not tending properly, or the Olivet Discourse, or the Last Supper, or the trials, everything, everything, everything is about the authority of Jesus to bring this program. The death of Jesus is put in the frame of a claim that He will be vindicated to sit at God's right hand and to judge in the end, even though He has died as an innocent. Or even as He has died as an innocent. He is not on the cross because He is a cursed figure. Which, by the way, would be the interpretation of Judaism. Judaism is, it is cursed is the one who hangs on a tree. So the church explains, no, this death, Jesus is cursed, but He's not cursed because of who He is. He is cursed because of what He bears. He bears the sins of the world. He goes to the cross as an innocent, bearing that sin. And that's why God vindicated Him. Within history, in a death that resulted in resurrection within three days. The resurrection, then, is a divine vindication of all those claims. It is God's vote in the dispute between Jesus and the Jewish leadership, which then is a window on the theology of Jesus' claims and an endorsement of what it is that He's taught. And whether we think about all authority has been given unto Me under heaven and earth, Matthew 28.18, or we think about the picture of Luke 24, where it talks about repentance being preached for the forgiveness of sins in His name. Think about that for a second. We haven't talked about that. Forgiveness of sins in His name? Put on your yarmulke and kippah. In whose name do you offer forgiveness of sins? Yahweh. Or we think about the picture of Jesus being seated at the right hand where He distributes the Spirit from the side of the Father where He is an active executive of the kingdom of God. Or we think of Acts 10, 38-42 which has the same picture and looks forward to as being a judge of the living and the dead. All that put together says that Jesus is the uniquely authoritative revelator of God. He is the Logos. The Logos is the truth. Truth is about a person. Truth is about a worldview that rotates around a person. It's not merely about ideas. And so Jesus is the revelator of God. That brings us to the cover of the book. Turn, if you will, to 647. Actually, let's start on 646. Look at the top. At the top of 646 is the Apostles' Creed. This is one of the oldest creeds that we possess in the church. Just listen to what it says. I believe in God the Father Almighty, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was born by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary, was crucified under Pontius Pilate and was buried. The third day He rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of the Father. From there He shall come to judge the quick and the dead. And in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Church, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body. 
very short, sweet, crisp explanation of what is believed. Here we see clearly the church's understanding that the events of the last week led Jesus to assume a position of unequaled authority at God's side to share in the divine prerogative of judgment and salvation. Jesus is more than a teacher, more than a prophet, more than a Messiah. He is the uniquely authoritative revelator of God. He is the unique Son of God. The thrust of Jesus' teaching was that He brought the promise of a new era of the rule of God. As prophet in the one hope for, Jesus both explained the divine program and embodied divine presence and authority. His mission began with and focused on Israel, but His ultimate goal was to bring the presence and promise of God to the world. To bring shalom to His creation. The kingdom presence that He inaugurated opened the way for the victory of God and the Spirit of God because forgiveness was made possible along with the hope of everlasting life. Opening up access to the grace of God, Jesus made possible a way of life that honored God. It was a way of life that reflected God's character and will. Jesus' ministry started on the premise that here was a mission to a nation and a world that needed this message of hope. Jesus understood that the renunciation of self-focus bound up in His call to turn to God meant that many in the world would not accept the invitation to be part of God's people. To accept God's gift of grace meant to acknowledge one's own need and limitations whether expressed as faith or repentance, the blessing of the kingdom comes only to those who embrace their need for life in the way God has established it. And then I talk about Jesus portraying himself primarily as a son of man, a human being being possessed of a divine authority because he also was divine and is shown by the fact that he has the right to sit at the right hand of God in God's very presence. Now, the middle paragraph of 647. The painting on the jacket of this book shows two men staring at Jesus. They represent the evangelists who having experienced Jesus tell us about Him. Beyond the evaluation, beyond the evangelists, two types of people tend to inquire about Jesus. One type searches for who He is. The other, having discovered where He can be found, tries to appreciate the depth of his message even more. The premise of this book and the premise of our class has been that our glimpse of Jesus is far clearer when he is seen according to Scripture rather than viewed in the reconstructions that pick and choose from the four portraits we have of Jesus. Our study has tried to show that from the earth up and from heaven down, that is from the synoptics and John, we can take a look at this portrait. In the end, the two portraits are not as diverse as they might initially appear if one keeps first century Jewish context in view and allows the portraits a degree of dialogue with each other. That an ultimate unity emerges from these portraits has been the burden of what I've done today. It's also the burden of the final section of the book. Jesus' challenge, which he sets out from Scripture through his sayings and acts, was that God's long-promised and long-for kingdom rule had broken into creation through His ministry. God's promise of hope and life, the provision of the Spirit, forgiveness, and a vindicated rule had come in Him. Jesus, according to Scripture, is a powerful figure who makes people think of Him and His mission as the primary question that one must face in life. The question of Jesus is primary because it asks of us not only who Jesus is, but also who we are as God's creatures. 
If one seeks to know oneself or to find life, one must measure oneself against the Creator and His plan. Jesus never is assessed alone, as if His identity were a historical or academic curiosity or merely a matter of private interpretation, opinion. For what we think of Jesus reveals what we think of ourselves, our capabilities, our needs, given the way that Jesus presented our need for God and Jesus' own role in that plan. Even as Jesus is the revelator of God, He also is the revelator of our hearts before God. In Luke chapter 2, this is said of Jesus as He is brought to the temple by His parents after He is born. Now there was a man in Jerusalem, 225, named Simeon, who was righteous and devout, looking for the restoration of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So Simeon, directed by the Spirit, came into the temple courts, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what was customary according to the law, Simeon took him in his arms and blessed God, saying, Now according to your word, Sovereign Lord, permit your servant to depart in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation. What Simeon is saying is, is that when he took Jesus into his arms, when he looked at Jesus, when he saw Jesus, what he actually saw was God's salvation. That you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light. That's where we started in the synoptics. The picture of the Messiah as the rising morning sun shining on a dark world. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And then he goes on to say this, in verse 34. This child is destined to be the cause of the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be rejected. Indeed, as a result of him, the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. That's an understatement. As a result of him, the thoughts of all hearts will be revealed. And so what we are saying in the picture of authority that comes from thinking about Jesus as the earth up or thinking about it from John from heaven down is that in Jesus is the program and salvation of God and the ultimate litmus test for where the heart of a person is before the Creator God. That's why we're talking about God's kingdom. Because His creation is ultimately what He has made and where He rules. And every creature must deal with their relationship to the Creator. There is no opting out. Neither is there an opting out for a church to take a message through service, word, and deed to a needy world as to where this deliverance can be found. Ultimately, the life of Christ is not about figuring out who Christ is. Ultimately, the life of Christ is about responding to the Creator and the One that He sent.
That is a message we are to take not just to the church. That's a message we're to take to the world. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Biblical Training Podcast. If you like what you heard and want to see more, visit our website, biblicaltraining.org, to access over 130 free classes. You can also download our app in the App Store or Google Play. We are a nonprofit ministry and depend on donations. If you're able, please click the Donate button on our website and donate today. Thank you.